All right. Well, good morning again, everyone who's joining us a little later today. Welcome you to our, to our church um, as we continue to celebrate the Advent season uh, where we're looking forward to a rising hope that is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, last week, we covered the expectation of Israel to receive a new king who will rule the world. But as we move forward, Isaiah kind of shifts gears, and he begins to tell the people what they are now to expect, what the people are now called to do as well as exiles in a foreign and hostile nation. And one thing that always interests me is the idea of hope or the idea of motivation during difficult times, right? What is it that allows people the capacity to move forward despite setbacks, despite failures and impossible situations? What allows people to be able to take the next step forward in life when everything seems to be pushing back against them? Now, recently on my flight back from Malaysia, um, I was watching someone watch Lord of the Rings, very bizarre, but I was watching him watch Lord of the Rings, and this trooper, because it was like a 14-hour flight, um, he basically watched the entire trilogy um, in one single sitting, which is like 10 hours or so. And of course, throughout Lord of the Rings, um, there's always a surprise from all the characters as they meet Frodo, this short little hobbit. Uh, since they all wonder how someone so small and so unassuming can bear such a large burden and how this young little hobbit can still take steps forward to, to you know, to fight against the enemy who, who can literally, like, destroy the world. And so the thing is, as you, as you watch through this movie, you see the ups and the downs of Frodo's journey. You see how happy he, he is at times, but also how much he hated carrying this ring and the tremendous burden it placed on him, but also the tremendous burden it placed on his friendship uh, with Sam, who's my favorite character at least. And in one of the darkest moments of the movie where Frodo was literally just about to give up, um, he, was all, he almost killed his friend Sam. Sam, this humble gardener, he actually says something that is truly memorable. Um, so I wanna play for us a little YouTube clip um, to show us how Sam can help Frodo take that next step forward despite impossible circumstances. There indeed is good. Um, that is worth fighting for. Uh, so as the Israelites, as they were trapped in captivity, um, experiencing despair in, in multiple and many ways, just like in Exodus, uh, the Israelites, they once again find themselves as foreigners in a foreign nation that abused them. The Israelites once again find themselves in the same situation uh, that they were a thousand years ago. And the people wondered, of course, as they're exiled, as they're in this foreign nation, they must wonder, has God left us? Has God forsaken us? Is God's wrath now upon us? And the answer to those questions is no. And Isaiah, as he gives a message to these people, he gives them a message of hope um, during a time of darkness in their lives. A message of hope that actually brings lasting comfort. Not temporary comfort, but lasting comfort. So let's take a look at our passage today, which comes from Isaiah chapter 35, uh, verses 1 to 10. And this is the message of hope that Isaiah has for the people uh, living in the land of darkness. 
The desert and the parched land will be glad. The desert, uh, the wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. There the lame will jump like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow and a highway will be there and it will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now in our passage... Um, Isaiah calls the people of Israel to do three things. Um, He calls the people to have unshakable faith. He calls the people to receive God's free gift of salvation. And he finally calls the people to celebrate. So let's take a look at these three callings, starting with the call to have unshakable faith. Now, as I mentioned earlier and last week as well, uh, the people of Israel are facing a critical period in their history where they are for the first time exiled from the promised land. And all the stories that they have heard from Exodus are beginning to become a reality for them. Uh, Once again, the people of God must experience what it is like to be foreigners living in a foreign nation where they're subjugated and abused. And based on what Isaiah says to them, to strengthen their feeble hands, to steady the knees that give way, and to say to those with a fearful heart to be strong, by saying these things, we get a sense of what the spiritual condition was like for the Israelites. And so weak or feeble hands, in the Old Testament, it was often a metaphor for people who were so filled with anxiety, grief, or despair that they were simply unable to act. They had, quote-unquote, weak hands. They couldn't do anything. And I think most people at one point or another might have experienced a tremendous amount of grief uh, or anxiety where they were simply frozen. For those who experienced tremendous grief, the process of even getting up out of bed might require Herculean efforts. And for those who suffer crippling anxiety, they might feel like a deer in the headlights, unsure of whether to move forward or back, unsure of what to do or which way to go. And so likewise, the Israelites did not know what to do. How are they supposed to move on with their lives? What are they going to do now as they find themselves once again to be subjects of another nation? And so there's a spirit of inaction in their lives. And related to this idea of weak hands of inactions is the idea of unsteady knees, uh, which is a metaphor for a lack of security or stability. These people, they have no idea what future is in store for them. 
Are they once again going to be slaves? What is their future? Will they be torn from their family? Will they be torn from their kids? Will they be executed? And what about their spiritual condition as well? Are they no longer the people of God? Has God forsaken them and abandoned them in their time of need? And so in their hearts and in their minds, they lacked a sense of security and stability, which is why they were unable to act. And so in light of these problems, Isaiah calls the people to strengthen themselves, to not live in fear, and to develop within themselves an unshakable faith. And of course, the question is, why, right? What good reason do the people have to not live in fear after seeing their homes burned down, being carried in chains to another nation? And we see the answer to that question in the rest of the verse, or in the rest of verse 3. Um, in the NIV, it actually omits a very critical word here. But after Isaiah says, be strong, do not fear, in Hebrew, Isaiah then says, behold, which is missing in the NIV. It says, behold your God. Isaiah calls the Israelites to behold, to once again turn their hearts and eyes back to Yahweh, who is still their God. And by saying specifically, your God, Isaiah is making the point that God has not left them, despite the fact that they are no longer in the promised land. God did not leave them, despite the fact that they failed to uphold God's command and repeatedly disobeyed him. And even though they are exiles in a foreign nation, Yahweh is still their God, and they are still his people. Although the relationship between Yahweh and Israel might be strained, it is not broken, and Yahweh still commits himself to be faithful to his people. Next, Isaiah tells the people that God will right the wrongs done to them, right? Isaiah says that he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, and put another way, God will basically take revenge for the wrong suffered by the, peop uh, by the people, and he will make the nation of Assyria pay for the evil that they have done. And so this displays to the Israelites that God is still a God of justice and that he takes evil incredibly seriously. He does not turn a blind eye when his people suffer, but he actively pursues justice on their behalf when they cannot receive it anywhere else. But when it comes to justice... It's not just about the removal of evil or paying back what is owed. Justice is also about seeking to bring restoration to those who are broken. That in the place of evil, goodness will take over. And so as Isaiah ends verse 3, after God takes vengeance on the people of Assyria, Isaiah then tells the people, he will come to save you. The people of God are called to receive God's free gift of salvation. But what does this salvation look like in our passage today? And there are two things that we see. One of the, well, the first thing we see is that there is a complete reversal. As Isaiah starts off the chapter, he begins with this beautiful image where he says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, the deserts will rejoice. And why do they rejoice? Because this dry wasteland of a desert will now blossom abundantly. That, that which was once unable to support life and was even hostile to life is now a place of creation, a 
and now a place of growth. And later in verse 7, Isaiah comes back to this theme where he now says that the burning sands shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. And I love this image that Isaiah brings of burning sands because it presents an accurate picture of a barren wasteland that is simply too hot to live in, where it's literally hostile to life because any moisture that touches these sands simply disappear, evaporates. A place that absorbs all rainfall and gives nothing back for the plants or animals to drink. But when Christ returns, there's a dramatic reversal where that which once brought death will now bring life. The burning desert sands which greedily stole all the water will now itself become a spring of water, providing life to everything around it. Places that humanity and animals once avoided because they would bring certain death will now bring certain life. And this happens not only to hostile places of nature, but there's also a restoration in that as well, in that that which was once broken is now made whole. Cities that were destroyed and are now filled with wild animals will once again become fertile lands that invites the Israelites to come back home, to settle down, to plant, to till the fields, to recreate civilization. Those whose eyes were blind shall now be opened. Those who lost their hearing will now have it restored. Those who are unable to walk will now be able to jump and dance. And often in life, um, I would hear from my friends and families, from mostly my family members at least, they would always talk about the glory days of when they were younger, right? They would reflect on a period of life where they could eat more, exercise more, run around all day without any fatigue. And they would tell me, you know, as they get older, they become, you know, they, they actually come face to face with reality that their bodies are slowly becoming more and more broken, where we cannot eat whatever we want, where we are not as strong or as physically active as before. We come face to face with this reality. But Isaiah tells us that message is actually not entirely true, that there will be a time when we will experience total restoration, where that which is broken is now whole, where our bodies and minds will be renewed and made whole again. And this is the future that we look forward to, that just as sure as we are that we will die, we are just as sure that we will live once again, fully restored and fully renewed. But the thing is, the salvation is actually something we are called to participate in. And more accurately, this is a salvation that we're called to receive. Although salvation, of course, is freely given, we are specifically called to receive it. It requires us to respond appropriately to God's free gift of salvation. In our passage in verse 8, Isaiah speaks of this highway of holiness, but he says that the unclean will not journey on it. And the word unclean that Isaiah used there is the Hebrew word for people who are made ritually unclean. It's not the end of the world. These are people who, by their actions have, or, or by touching or eating certain things, have made themselves impure. And because they're impure, they cannot come before God. But the thing is, under Old Testament law, these impurities can be removed through sacrifices. There is a way to remove these impurities. 
And so with this information in mind, when we look back at our passage, we see that the unclean are not allowed to journey on this highway, not because God rejected them, not because God hates them. Rather, these unclean people are people who have disqualified themselves from salvation. They know the means of grace. They know how to receive God's salvation, but for one reason or another, they refuse to receive it. They self-disqualify themselves from salvation. And so if unclean people are those who refuse to receive God's free gift of salvation, then those who are holy, those who are clean, are those who respond appropriately to the gospel message. They're the ones who have heard the message of salvation, and rather than treating it as another passing interest or thoughts, they hold on to it with a single-minded enthusiasm. Their hearts, their minds cling on to this message as if their lives depended on it, because in some sense, their lives do depend upon God's free gift of salvation. There's a deep yearning within their hearts for the reversal of evil, for the restoration of goodness back into this broken world. And these are the people who devote themselves to following God and God's demand, and their hearts and souls are fixed simply on God alone. And so we see so far that we're called to have unshakable faith. We're called to receive God's free gift of salvation and to participate in this dramatic reversal and renewal of our worlds. But Isaiah's final call for the people is to celebrate. When we read throughout this passage, there's, there's obviously a very clear atmosphere of joy, of gladness, right? We start the passage off with God's creation experiencing gladness as the curse of sin is taken away. And as we end the passage, we see God's people experiencing gladness as they now enter Zion where, God's, where God dwells. And Isaiah tells us that as the people of God enter Zion, gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. As the world and as the people of God are radically changed and renewed, there simply is no room for grief and sadness anymore. Isaiah describes this as being overtaken by gladness and joy. And the word overtaken that is used here is the same word to speak of an army so strong that it would utterly destroy and take over everything in its path. An army so strong that no foe can stand up against it as if they are swept away by a tidal wave. And in our passage, we see that it's not an army of death, not an army of decay that is overtaken. Rather, it is an army of gladness, an army of joy that chases away the sorrows of our lives and overtakes us with gladness and with joy. Isaiah is looking forward to a period of history where it will be characterized by unbroken and unbreakable happiness. And because of this glorious future that awaits us, we're called to celebrate. We're called to enter into God's dwelling with singing and dancing. And because we're called to celebrate, we actually begin to see why the people earlier were renewed. Those who were once mute are now healed so that they can celebrate, so that they can shout for joy. Those who could not walk are now given sturdy legs to dance and to jump for joy. We are healed not just for the sake of health, but we are healed to celebrate. We are healed to rejoice with God. 
will be given new bodies to praise, to sing, and to dance all day long as we acknowledge and celebrate the work that God has done in this world and in our lives. It will be a period of history where we can finally truly worship God with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and all of our strength. And so as we gather here today, church, to celebrate the Advent season, we acknowledge that this path to eternal salvation comes to us only through Christ. He is the one who has opened the eyes of the blind, who unstopped the ears of the deaf, deaf, who allowed those who could not walk the ability to jump for joy, who has given those who could not speak the ability to finally praise God. He's the one who has lifted those who are brought down. He's the one who has chased away the enemy. But most of all, he is the one who has given life to the dead. And so as we celebrate today, he has given all of us here the promise of eternal salvation. Not a passing hope, not an aspiration to look forward to, but the sure promise of salvation, a binding contract. And so I encourage all of us here today, if we have not received God's free gift of salvation, let us hold on to it ourselves. In this Christmas season, we often speak of giving and receiving gifts, and today God has given us all the gift of radical renewal, of total salvation. And so let us receive it with open arms, and let us truly embrace our call to celebrate, to celebrate the goodness and the generosity of our God. Why don't we come together for a time of prayer? Heavenly Father, you, you have simply given us so much, and all you ask for us is to receive, to receive this free gift of salvation and to walk in your path of holiness. And so I pray, Father, that you'll stir within our hearts a desire to have a single-minded focus on you, to cling to you, and to develop our faith by trusting in you. Let us experience your presence uh, throughout this Christmas season, and as we're ever so close to the new year, Lord, we, we also pray that we'll continue to be transformed into Christ-likeness. We thank you, Lord, and we eagerly anticipate uh, the day when gladness and joy will chase away the sorrows of our lives. Most of, Lord, most of all, Lord, we love you, and we want to praise you. We want to celebrate you here today. And so let us do that. And we pray all this in your most precious son's name. Amen.